welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Caprice Roberts, Visiting Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. We will discuss her article, Disgorging Emoluments, which will be published in the Marquette Law Review. So welcome to the show, Caprice. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, the pleasure's all mine. Um, I've been looking forward to this for for a long time. Um, and and I must say the remedies content on the podcast has been lacking. So I'm really glad to have an eminent remedies scholar on the show for maybe even like the first time. I'm not sure. Wow. Well, that would be uh, we need, definitely need to get some other remedies uh, scholars on the show. So so I'm I'm glad to help to help start that off. Awesome. 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 Well, so. Your, I found your paper really interesting because you're talking about subject matter that a lot of other people are talking about, but you're doing it in like a 180 degree different way. <laughs> from good, good way to think about most of my scholarship. I'm, I'm talking about perhaps a, a broader subject matter that interests many, many people. So you have the sort of constitutional debate going on about emoluments right now, but thinking about it from that completely, as you said, 180 degree different angle about what actually happens once we determine that there are unlawful emoluments. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start there, right? So what are emoluments anyway, and why do they matter? And in particular, why do they matter right now? Sure. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the paper, I mean, there's so many different ways you can come at emoluments. Obviously, it's it's mentioned in the, in the constitutional provisions at issue. But even before that, it, it is a word that has meaning in Latin and French and English. Uh, sometimes it can be described as any gain at all, any benefit, any advantage, any profit. Uh, but in order for it to become something that would really be unlawful, that's really the debate that's going on among constitutional scholars when you talk about either the Foreign Emoluments Clause or the Domestic Emoluments Clause. Uh, is it being used to gain some type of advantage that would be wrongful? So you're looking for something that would either be trying to curry favor with someone in the executive office or uh, the the Justice Department, for example, would say that it should be a very narrow definition, uh, but some of the courts at issue have already said uh, that they view it more broadly than the Justice Department, but the Justice Department has said that it should only be the case of quid pro quo, meaning an actual bribery. Uh, of course, if it is a bribery, there there are other uh, laws that could deal with that uh, narrow type of definition of emoluments. Uh, so I think it's something broader than that, uh, but again not necessarily where where the president agrees to do something in return, but where the president perhaps receives a profit or a gain or a benefit uh, by virtue of the office. And in some way that that shows either a uh, disloyalty to the United States government or profiting in a way that is otherwise unacceptable. Right. So, the, I mean, the interesting thing for me was that, you know, Everyone's been talking so much about whether or not the emoluments clause has been violated, but no one is really talking about what happens if it is, because I guess like no one really knows because it's like never really happened before. Right. And, and your, and your paper is really looking at sort of like this back end question of like, if it should be the case that the emoluments clause or clauses are being violated, like then what? Is that right? 
No, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, there are a couple interesting things about that. One is that it's not that we've never dealt with emoluments problems before, but most of those problems have been dealt with behind the scenes because we have both norms and ethical guidelines that bolster what the Constitution is saying. And so in the past, you certainly have had presidents have concerns um, or their executive office. Certainly, if we go broader and talk about everyone working there, they've asked for example, the Office of Legal Counsel for opinions, uh, and they've and and in, in a couple cases, it's been determined that certain things aren't emoluments, which I've talked about in my paper. So when you think about um, former President uh, Vice President Gore, of course I should say Vice there because <laughs> he didn't become the president, but Vice President Gore, who received the Nobel Prize, that was uh, some were concerned that that might have been an emolument, and they ruled that it was not. Uh, you had President Ronald Reagan, former president who uh, had uh, received certain retirement benefits from the state of California, also ruled not emoluments, but again, ruled in sort of these preliminary determinations, either by ethical bodies that help oversee the government or by the Office of Legal Counsel itself. Uh, But even finding out what has the Office of Legal Counsel determined is, is difficult because not all of that is public. The uh, some nonprofit organizations have requested in a, in a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act request, they've asked to get into that and see, please give us every single opinion about emoluments. So we're not even clear on what has been determined in the past, but most of it has been resolved without it ever coming to a full-blown litigation head. By that, I mean, you know, going to into here federal court and bringing lawsuits. And so this administration is not the first one to, to have issues about potential emoluments, but it's the first to have uh, litigation being filed and here three different lawsuits being filed, <clears throat> one by a nonprofit organization, uh, one by the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, and then one by 201 legislators. And so that's really bringing into question um, what are unlawful emoluments and, and what if we were to determine that this executive has engaged in that behavior, what can be done about it? So I'm very interested in the what can be done about it question, especially because we need to think about future executives and future administrations, uh, ex- even if we don't get a final determination in these cases, which for a variety of reasons we, we might not, because we're going to have standing hurdles and other issues uh, about getting standing, meaning whether or not they can sue in federal court, whether they're the right plaintiffs at the right time and being able to proceed against this executive. Right. So your paper is focusing on kind of what remedies might or should be available. In other words, what should we do about it if it turns out that there is an emoluments clause violation. But it seems as if that question is at least informed by the nature of the original dispute, if I if I understand that correctly. So I mean I was wondering if maybe you could kind of like kind of just sketch out what the nature of the different disputes are and sort of point to the factors in those disputes that you might that you think might be relevant to sort of how we would ultimately think about a remedies question in relation to each of those disputes or, or, you know, or do they all end up pointing in the same direction or are there factors that might sort of affect how we think about the remedies depending on the nature of the dispute itself? Right. Uh, So one of the things I say in my paper, I'm 
I'm not ultimately trying to resolve the constitutional interpretation of, of what the exact boundaries of emoluments, of, of unlawful emoluments in the Constitution might mean, or whether that should be done through different types of historical approaches. I think plenty of scholars are in that territory, and I'm, I'm happy to sort of look to them as to what that should be, or to say that perhaps Congress, uh, if they want to pass legislation, they could define what the ultimate boundaries could be. In terms of the remedy, I'm interested in that, and it, and you are right, though, the remedy obviously connects to how we view the right being shaped, so and, and the wrong corresponding to that right, because there is, in my mind, a correlative effect between the remedy and the right. <clears throat> because one of the things that the remedy can do is help ensure that we're servicing the goals that we intend, and so we really need to know what are we trying to avoid with having a foreign emoluments clause and a domestic emoluments clause, what are we trying to stop from happening? And I mentioned already, uh, we could be trying to stop disloyalty. We could be trying to stop corruption and deter corruption from happening. Um, as the executive has said, it could just be about bribery. I think it's broader than that. But it, whatever you deem it to be, if those are goals we're trying to service, then we, we have to care about deterring that very behavior. And I think that links to, uh, in these three different pieces of litigation, it, it does matter what they're claiming is the potential violation because it might show how a remedy of disgorgement could be potentially very useful. And <clears throat> the other reason is... Uh, I'm ultimately going to suggest restitution-based remedies, and then those remedies in particular care about preventing unjust enrichment, which I think dovetails quite nicely with what an unlawful emolument is. So, so that's the reason why restitution is particularly relevant. And, and one last thing I should say about that and why I'm, I'm such an advocate for, this, uh, for the remedies of restitution in this area is because no one in any of the existing litigation, no one has mentioned or brought a claim uh, based upon unjust enrichment or restitution. So part of it is that is that these are remedies that should be thought about and, and perhaps causes of action that should be added to these complaints, um, but they're not on the minds of lawyers who are litigating them, perhaps because they're focused on more constitutional frames, um, perhaps because they're just trying to get discovery at the front end and survive initial hurdles, uh, or they might be thinking about types of equitable relief like injunctive uh, relief, which is also, I think, uh, I'm not saying those other remedies aren't good ones to be pursuing, but perhaps they ought to have a broader uh, approach in terms of the remedies. Right, right. Well, so I wonder if you could just kind of sketch out what the like theoretical options would be. Like assuming that one or more of these emoluments clause violation lawsuits is successful, what kind of potential remedies would be on the table and sort of what would be the purpose of kind of adopting one or another of those kinds of remedies? In other words, you know, when we're kind of looking at our kind of smorgasbord of, of options, sort of what's out there? Sure. Uh, so, so you you also mentioned just about what what are what are the lawsuits sort of seeking, and, and the three lawsuits have have different approaches in terms of what they claim the president is doing wrongfully under the Constitution. Um, but all three of them, I think, broadly are saying that the that the president is benefiting in some way that uh, runs up against an emoluments problem. Uh, that due to his role in office, that that is causing him to have perhaps higher gains. So in, in the 
uh, one of the litigations, which is the District of Columbia and Maryland, they're claiming that by accepting gifts and benefits from foreign entities, that they are trying to curry favor with the executive and that just the acceptance of those gifts, including uh, anyone uh, staying at the Trump Hotel who might be seeking advantage or to curry favor, that that could be violative, for example. Um, <clears throat> the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington also suing, saying that the, the businesses of, of President Trump, and these were, of course, businesses he owned prior to coming into the executive office. So, you know, his defense would be, I have every right to continue to do that, or I've separated it through, through a trust that's um, receiving some of the um, profits from that. But Crew, which is the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, would say that he is benefiting at a much higher rate of return because of his role as president. So, for example, at Mar-a-Lago, um, this is the resort in Florida, the amounts that are, are pro- the profiting amounts have and fees have gone up and doubled from 100000 to 200000 just right after the election, for example. The hotel in Washington, D.C. is being leased by government services. So that's sort of the second um, primary sort of theme of what the violation is. Um, and then you have the litigation, which I mentioned by the 201 uh, Democratic legislators, and they also are uh, saying that the president is accepting foreign payments potentially to the Trump organization, and, and this could be an unlawful emolument. What's interesting to me about all three of these pieces of litigation or, or these actions is that they primarily seek declaratory and injunctive relief, and they have a catch-all for any other relief the court deems just, but they're not including what I would like them to include, which is a, a host of sort of restitutionary approaches. And restitution <clears throat> is different than, let's say, compensatory harms or compensatory damages, which is most familiar to law students and even most lawyers. They're going to be very comfortable in the realm of thinking about compensation or thinking about injunctions as an alternative, thinking if they want to go and order certain things to happen or not happen. Um, And they would think about compensation as the way to remedy perhaps for any losses. So if you think about competitor hotels that might have losses, then compensation might come to mind. But that's not what these lawsuits are really getting at, because, again, the people that are the plaintiffs are not these other hotels around the area. Instead, it's saying that the executive is earning a profit that the executive has no right to earn because it's an unlawful emolument. And if they had been thinking about restitution, which, um, by the way, Doug Laycock has famously said in in his uh, article about the scope and significance of restitution, he says that in the mental map of most lawyers, restitution consists largely of blank spaces with undefined borders and only scattered patches of familiar ground. And so that's really what I'm trying to do most in the world is get lawyers, judges, uh, law professors, get and litigants thinking about restitution as perhaps something that could also be going on as a separate cause of action or an additional cause of action. It can be a freestanding cause of action, meaning the actual wrong can be unjust enrichment, a theory of liability. Or it can just be remedies that would attach onto other breaches of law, whether that be a fiduciary breach or a breach of the constitutional emoluments clauses themselves. So that's what I want, or I hope, that people would think about, because what restitution is at its core is the idea that one cannot benefit 
wrongfully, that one cannot gain something that it would be unjust to retain without either paying for that benefit or yielding it. And here I'm, I'm interested in the yielding it part because here it's not, it's not as if the classic unjust enrichment is, it's let's say you get um, a bank deposit that accidentally goes into your account that you have no right to. It could come from the government. It could come from someone else's bank account. You don't have a right to keep that. There's an unjust enrichment liability that you would have to give that money back. Or if someone does a service for you and they're not a volunteer, you would have to pay the reasonable value for that service in order to correct that imbalance that Aristotle has talked about. There's an imbalance there that it's just basically the concept that you can't reap what another person has sowed. Here, we're going one layer a little bit deeper into restitution to talk about, well, we're not saying the president has received something that he needs to pay for, like a service that it would be wrongful for him to retain without paying for. Instead, we're saying he's received something, perhaps, if you think that he has, some type of gain or profit or monetary amount or worst case bribe, but let's just say monetary amount to potentially curry favor, and he hasn't agreed to do anything in return but we think it's wrong for him to keep it. If that's the case, then a restitution disgorgement remedy would say that he must give up that profit. And that's why I want people thinking about disgorgement of wrongful gains. Hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between compensation and restitution and sort of how they measure the sort of level of relative harm or the kind of ultimate remedy that has to be paid? Like, how do they differ conceptually in terms of how they think about the nature of remedying whatever the relevant harm is? Sure. And I think a nice example is if you think back to uh, the Spokio case where the plaintiff there, and I don't know if you remember that case, but the plaintiff there alleged that Spokio you know, was gathering various information across the internet and then posting it about an individual, right? About many individuals. Um, <clears throat> and it was saying, you know, it was perhaps amalgamating information about someone's job status, about their marital status, and ultimately, it put up some information that where it was probably merging people of the same name. So it had some information that at least the plaintiff claimed was incorrect. If you are going to talk about compensatory loss and compensating someone for, for a wrong there, if you think there is a wrong, a wrong due to the misinformation, which there are certain uh, federal laws that could govern that in that particular case, <clears throat> if you're just talking about compensation, then you would say, well, what has that plaintiff individually lost due to the misinformation, right? And so if you start focusing it that way, like what is their actual injury? And that's why that case had a very famous conversation uh, then back when you had Justice Scalia on the court and others who, who wanted to talk about what's called um, wallet or purse or just bank account, you know, something hitting your pockets, Financial harm, physical harm, when you think about tort cases, has somebody injured you, then they should have to pay to put you back to your pre-injury status. Uh, that's how we think about tort world. In breach of contract world, we would talk about how do we compensate you for the loss by giving you the benefit of your bargain, putting you where you expected to be had the bargain been performed as promised. 
The Spokio case also had another potential way to, quote, compensate, and that was through statutory damages because the statute set out that there would be a $1,000, um, potentially a $1,000 award as a matter of statutory harm. But there was still this huge argument about standing in that case, about Article Three standing and whether or not the plaintiff could survive for jurisdiction matters in federal court when the plaintiff could not allege that he had lost a job because of the misinformation or lost even a relationship. There was nothing. All he knew was that the information was incorrect. And how, you know, can he, can he sort of proceed past that? And that's what the United States Supreme Court was dealing with in that case. Uh, they ended up remanding about, you know, how to look for the type of concrete injury that they wanted. And then the Ninth Circuit ended up basically uh, saying that there, they did uh, believe that there was an injury that was cognizable there. But the interesting thing is that restitution scholars um, actually submitted an amici brief in that case. And the reason why we did was because we felt very strongly, uh, and I, I signed on to this brief, I didn't write it, but um, Doug Laycock and, and Mark Gergen and, and Doug Rendleman and others were, were part of this brief. And they argued in the brief, or we argued in the brief, that the court need to be very careful if it limits standing to purely compensatory harms, you would get rid of a whole swath of cases which have historically had standing that are restitution-based claims. Because in restitution cases, the beauty of it is you do not look at compensating the plaintiff at all. You do not look at plaintiff's loss because that's not what's, rele what's relevant. So it wouldn't matter if plaintiffs couldn't establish that they lost money. So, for example, we're not looking at the competitor hotels or trying to have the competitor hotels show that, that the Trump hotel got sales that they would have gotten. We, we're not even trying to get at that. Instead, we would look to whether or not there's improper gain by the defendant. So you don't look at all to the plaintiff, and instead you look just to the defendant and say, has defendant gained improperly? So if you think back uh, to the famous SNAP case, which is where the ex-CIA uh, agent basically published a book without pre-publication clearance, which his contract required him to do, uh, you wouldn't look to, well, how did the government lose money or how did the government, uh, how is the government harmed? You don't look at their loss, even though the government might claim uh, they were harmed in intangible ways. You don't need to prove that. Instead, you would look to how has the defendant gained in an improper way, profited on a book that they didn't get permission to publish first because they didn't get the clearance about whether or not it was classified information. And so <clears throat> what restitution would do with that case today is it would say, treat that as an opportunistic breach of contract and disgorge the unlawful gains. At the time the U.S. Supreme Court heard that case, we hadn't fully developed uh, all the terminology for that type of remedy and that type of thinking. So the Supreme Court um, instead did a constructive trust and it really wasn't clear what basis it was giving that constructive trust. Like what was it using? Was it using breach of contract? Was it using a fiduciary breach? Um, but technically, he was no longer working for the CIA or the government at the time. So the fiduciary analysis isn't quite perfect doctrinally. But now if we were to look at it, we would just say view that as a restitution type of case under opportunistic breach of contract uh, and say that it was wrong for him to do that without asking. And we ought to just take the gain away. And what that does 
by t- using a restitutionary disgorgement remedy, you get to both remove the improper gain, which undoes the unjust enrichment, and you deter that behavior from the future from happening again for people consciously taking advantage of another without asking. And to tie this back to the emoluments, if you look at the foreign emoluments clause, right, it specifically says it prohibits foreign emoluments without seeking the consent of Congress. So that's, you know, the the framers specifically put into the Constitution there that you, it's like the it's like the pre-publication clearance. It's not just prohibiting that you receive these foreign emoluments or domestic, but here with respect to foreign, they want to make sure that even if you you think that they're not or you think they might be, that you need to go to Congress and seek their consent in advance. And so, ordinarily, injunctive relief is perfect if you think this is about to happen. Right. If you think that there's an eminent harm and that we're about to have that the executive is about to accept foreign emoluments and we could run to the court very quickly and get injunctive relief to stop it right now and say, wait, get our permission first. That's what injunctive relief does. And it may be that we want to have an injunction going forward for potential. But then that, then we get to that's very um it's very unclear if that's eminent or not, if we really have future threats. If we're talking about something that's already happened or believed to have already happened, then what you really need is to undo the wrong. If you think there have already been foreign emoluments that were obtained without seeking that permission, then it's too late for the injunction on those. So what you need is to utilize, I think, a disgorgement remedy where you could have any gains, whether those are gifts or profits that are unlawful, that they would be given up. The other alternative would also be restitutionary, which is a constructive trust. Uh, but constructive trust, and I've seen a couple scholars mention this in their work uh, related to emoluments. So one of the beauties of disgorgement or disgorging improper gains or stripping away a wrongful profit from a defendant is that, again, you don't have to show loss on the plaintiff's part. You're just looking to whether or not the gain itself is unlawful on the defendant's side. And then the court would be able to say that those profits should be given to the plaintiff. And we can talk, uh, or you know, Congress could think about who might be the best plaintiff, whether or not we should have some type of whistleblower statute, which is one of the things I mentioned. There could be ways to put it in the public trust if you think that's where it ought to go. But at minimum, you would get it out of the hands of the wrongdoer. And disgorgement works particularly well in cases where an injunction would have been great had we brought it in time to stop the behavior from happening in the first place. And an injunction is great if you have the behavior being repetitive and you think we need an injunction going forward. But the only way to deal with gains already received would be to undo those gains through a disgorgement remedy. And as I mentioned, some have suggested perhaps a constructive trust, which, by the way, is also a restitution remedy, but it is proprietary in that you would then ask the court, instead of saying, I want to either account for profits or, you know, disgorge profits, you instead ask the court for an order, which is always equitable, and that order would be about usually title to property uh, or to some type of property that we would need transferred over from the defendant to the plaintiff. So a constructive trust can work in a very similar fashion to a disgorgement style remedy, but it may be that disgorgement um, is an easier path here. 
but both would be both would be worth uh, entertaining. And, and if you think you need something that is property that's been given to the president uh, or to the executive or to anyone unlawfully, then you might want to also think about a constructive trust. Mm. So if I understand it correctly, I mean, it seems to me like on one level, we've sort of got this idea of of compensation where we want to make the victim of some sort of wrongdoing whole. But in some circumstances, it's really hard to sort of measure the harms. And so sort of a compensation remedy is hard to gin up because we don't know how much we're supposed to pay. And so one way of kind of getting a proxy for that is to look at sort of what has the wrongdoer internalized. But it seems like there's something else going on too. Like it's not just compensation. It's also, there seems like a kind of almost like a, like a, like a punishment element to it as well. Like you're not entitled to have what you've gotten, whether or not you got it at the expense of the person who's has been harmed. Is that the right way to think about the relationship between sort of uh, compensation and disgorgement or restitution? It's, it's, I wouldn't say right, but it is a, a controversial and provocative suggestion. And what I will say about it first on your first point of whether or not disgorgement is an alternative way to perhaps measure compensation. Restitution is not trying to measure compensation at all. It is completely distinct from compensation. Although in some cases you might view it as extra compensatory in that it could do more than what perhaps the loss that is showable is. In some cases, I'm just telling you there are examples where there are no compensatory losses, or at least none provable, and here's this other path that doesn't even require it, meaning it's not part of the elements. It's not the goal of it. It's not what we're up to. Instead, it is just trying to make sure we undo the gain. And again, going back to Aristotle talked about that it's the most fundamental, that we would want to fix a restitution problem even more than we might want to fix some other compensation problems, at least in a contract sense. Of course, in tort world, if you physically injured someone, we certainly want to compensate for that. But then you get to the other interesting point, which is if it's not doing compensation, whether it's a proxy for it, some courts might say that they're doing something that's like a proxy, but it's really not supposed to be a proxy. It's its own method of awarding recovery. It's not even considered to be damages at all. It's called a restitution award if it's done properly. And the court is trying to measure defendant's wrongful gain. Then you said, well, does it then become punitive? And some would argue or or perhaps assume that it is, but restitution in the 1400 pages of the restatement third of restitution, it says, and I need to count them up, but it says multiple times restitution is not supposed to be punitive. Um, And so that's not to say a defendant might not feel that they are, quote, being punished because their gain is being stripped. But the only gain that should be stripped is the gain that's wrongful to retain, if that makes sense. So we're deterring for sure. But you can deter before you start, quote, punishing. We're not trying to either treble the damages or kick it to a jury and say, add on any amount in order to, you know, further punish the defendant. We're not trying to go farther than just strip the gain to the extent that it would be unlawful. And in some cases, if a defendant says, well, you know, all that gain wasn't unlawful, 
So think about some of your infringement cases, like in the intellectual property realm, uh, where you do have uh, disgorgement in some cases, you have it in, in trademark cases and copyright cases, and in design patents, but not other patents for statutory reasons. And, and, and because cases have put a gloss on this on the statutes in question about whether or not disgorgement is still permissible uh, for regular patents, but for, for design patents, uh, which I talk about the Apple versus Samsung case in, in the article, in the draft article. But if you think about those cases, if, if the defendant can say some of that gain was proper because I put, let's say, my own effort into enhancing the value, even though I might have had an infringement on some part, let's say, or then we would look for a way through the restitution sections about how to get into attribution questions, get into offsetting for for any type of sort of value added by the defendant's own efforts. So there are ways to ordinarily calculate for that. Here with the emoluments discussion, however, it, it's a little bit more cut and dry because it's at least hypothetically, if you're, if you're talking about a foreign country perhaps giving something specifically to curry favor, then I think we would argue, well, there, there's no universe in which part of that is rightful. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If instead we think, well, it's hard to sort of get into, if we're talking about the profits of a whole entity, perhaps some of the profits are rightful on the Trump Hotel and some of them are not. We certainly are going to do that analysis to make sure that we calibrate it correctly. We're not trying to strip every single profit that's being made, unless you think that a sitting president should be allowed to make no uh, profits whatsoever. And there have been some scenarios in the past where where ethics rules have said that you must uh, divulge certain board interests and, and certain profits from companies. But usually people deal with that by having blind trust, which, of course, the president uh, has engaged in some of that behavior. So, you, again, we would have to look closely and figure out to what extent is the president getting gains by virtue of the presidency that are in violation of foreign and domestic emoluments that it would make sense to strip perhaps the entire amount? Yeah, yeah. So Caprice, in in closing, you said that the lawsuits that have currently been filed really don't seem to include restitution-type remedies in terms of what they're asking for. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of why you think that might be and how adding in those kinds of remedies might reframe or change or make more appropriate the claims that are being made and also the kinds of remedies that the claimants are looking for. Uh, Absolutely. So if if you look at the litigation, uh, at least, you know, every every single one of the cases that have, have been filed are, are having significant problems. Uh, a, a couple of them, uh, one of them was dismissed right from the district court level. Another one was dismissed on appeal. And largely, they're having standing problems. And the standing problems connect back to um, this idea of, well, what's your compensatory loss? and or what's your actual injury, because that's what the uh, standing rules require uh, in terms of the constitutional requirements. <clears throat> the last piece of litigation is doing a little better, which is the 201 Democratic legislatures is doing a touch better, meaning they've survived the standing challenge. And at least according to uh, you know one court in question, it said that they demonstrated sufficient injury to satisfy Article 3. Uh, and that's the one, again, where they're supposed to get Congress's permission. 
But even that, um, they've been asked on uh, remand to get into the sort of questions of separation of powers. So all of that is coming to bear in part because we're looking at who are the plaintiffs bringing the lawsuits, what types of injuries are they claiming, and what relief? Is that relief going to become intrusive in terms of a separation of powers issue, or is the court going to be asked to engage in a question that perhaps the court is uncomfortable there? Uh, is it something that's solely committed to another branch of government, for example? And so that's that's still being reviewed by the courts. Um in terms of remand. But if they were to also include in, in amended pleadings a restitution type theory, it gives another way where we're not focused on compensating the loss of a plaintiff, but we're instead focused on the wrongful gain of the defendant. So that could perhaps help on some of the standing grounds. And it also just opens up another avenue if for some reason it's too late for injunctive relief, perhaps the inadequacy hurdles. Um, meaning all the different you know, procedural requirements for injunctions, if those are difficult to meet, the restitution requirements are uh, uh, slightly different. <clears throat> and it gives the court perhaps another way, if you start getting into a larger dispute, let's say, uh, which you have uh, some of the some of the anarchy briefs, for example, by uh, Josh Blackman and uh, Seth Barrett Tillman, they've talked about the distinction between whether or not these lawsuits can be against the president in his public capacity versus the president in his individual capacity, meaning if he's receiving these emoluments and not doing something uh, with respect to government property, then perhaps it's more about his private bank account. They would say that then it has to be about his, you have to have the lawsuit be against him as in his individual capacity. If so, then you would also want to have this restitution type of disgorgement remedy because that can go to him as the individual. Again, though, you'd still have to pass standing hurdles. You might still need some statutory um, authorization to get Congress really uh, allowing private rights of action in a way that it has in, in, in the Bivens area, for example. So there's a bit more work that has to be done. And so I'm not necessarily trying to fix these lawsuits, although I do want lawyers to think more broadly about the way that alternative theories of relief could help their lawsuits stay alive and might actually achieve what they want in the end which is to undo the unjust gain and to deter this type of bad behavior in the future. If, if a wrongdoer in the future thinks I won't be able to keep that profit, then they're not going to go about grand designs trying to make wrongful profit. And or they're going to ask permission first, which under the Foreign Emoluments Clause, that's exactly what, what the executive is supposed to do with respect to Congress, ask permission first. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Caprice, for coming on the show. This was like an uh, incredibly uh, illuminating discussion of an area of law that, uh, frankly, I know very little about. Well, you know what? You've given me an opportunity to be a restitution evangelist, to also talk about remedies, which I'm deeply passionate about, because if if, if we're not going to know what we're going to do about it, then why does any of this matter? Uh, we want to promote the goals of the underlying law, which I love the way that remedies can help shape and promote those goals of justice and restitution in particular shows us the way in which quiet corners of the law can have massive impact. So thanks so much, Brian.
they want to say. 